All right, let's uh, go ahead and begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 16, a section of 1 Samuel subtitled, David Anointed King. And if I recall, we got right up to his anointing. I won't belabor the point, but 1 Samuel has been all about the great reversal motif, the great reversal theme. Those who are lowly are lifted up. Those who are lifted up in arrogance, exalting themselves, are humbled and made low. We see this with uh, Saul, for example. Saul, um, initially humble enough, uh, but when he is raised up to kingship at the idolatrous will of the people, he himself becomes idolatrous, arrogant, puffed up. We've seen that before. We're going to see that again in these texts. And, of course, as one who exalts himself, he is ripe for fall. And then as David, his replacement, whom the Lord has chosen, is introduced, we see that David is represented as uh, the lowest and the weakest. Uh, So, for example, uh, the Lord tells uh, Samuel to go to Bethlehem, which, of course, Bethlehem is, you know, not an important place. And amongst the people in Bethlehem, there are the elders, and then there is Jesse, who seems not to be an elder. So even within Bethlehem politics, as small as they may be, uh, Jesse is no one. And Jesse uh, parades his seven sons before Samuel at Samuel's request so that the Lord can tell him which one is to be anointed. And he gets to the end, and of course, it's none of them. And so Samuel asks, well, is there not yet another son? Oh, yeah, I guess the youngest, he's out in the field, um, one of, uh, you know, no account. And that's David. That's the one who is anointed. So once more, we see these these themes of of the the greater and mighty are cast down and the the lowly and meek are lifted up. Um, Theme throughout Samuel, theme throughout uh, Luke and uh, Luke's gospel. And theme, of course, one of the major themes and motifs of how Jesus preaches law and gospel in one and the same way. So uh, let's, without further ado then, oh, well, maybe I should point, <laughs> point out this most obvious fact too, but without it you really lose the, lose the, the truest sense of 1 Samuel as a text. Jesus Christ, the true king, is the one behind all of this, showing forth unfaithful kings and faithful kings, ones that don't resemble him and ones that will resemble and do resemble him. And uh, so, so behind this entire text, we're, we're given to see that, that Jesus, once more, is the true king uh, for, for which the people are going to wait and then receive him. And, of course, you don't have to go far to think of him entering Jerusalem on the donkey, being crowned in thorns, reigning from the throne of the cross, etc. Jesus is the true king. And then also we've seen him be the true priest, perhaps with Eli and his sons, the false priests, 
And uh, the true prophet is well um, pointed out by Samuel. Um, Samuel, of course, a positive example pointing to the fullness of uh, or the fulfillment of that prophetic role in Christ, who is its fullness. All right, so now, without further ado, back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in the, in the middle of this anointing of David, for the sake of it, let's just pick up at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, uh, something I failed to point out last week because we, we went through this section rather quickly. Uh, of course, David's going to be a king, and David is introduced to us as the shepherd. And so we see here both signs and types of the one who is the shepherd, just as I mentioned moments ago, he is the king. And so even in David, the shepherd king, we see behind him and in front of him uh, the true shepherd king, the one who says, I am, I am the good shepherd, and the one who is certainly our king crowned in thorns. So David is uh, introduced as a shepherd. That also puts him in a line of shepherds. Maybe I'll just point that out briefly too. Moses spends his time as a shepherd. Um, And then all the way back to Abel, who is a shepherd. And so you have this kind of line of important figures being shepherds, uh, pointing to Jesus, who once more is the good shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And again, ruddy doesn't necessarily mean covered in red hair, so at least here it's not, it's not clear that that's the case of red complexion. I mean, obviously he's outdoors. It's, this can also be idiomatic for a healthy complexion. He's also described as having beautiful eyes, which we talked about last week, and handsome. So you know, he's, a, he's, a lively, he's a lively figure, in many ways larger than life, as, as of course we know and we'll see. Continuing with verse 12, And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So, again, the Lord, the true king, saying, this will be the one who is the king in my place, emblematic and iconic of my kingship. We've also been told earlier that this is a man after the Lord's heart. That's, uh, that's the language used um, when the Lord speaks about replacing uh, Saul. I'm going to replace you with a man after my own heart. So we see that. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, this anointing, of course, he is the anointed one, which is quite literally the Messiah. And so the kings as anointed ones are already messiahs. That is to say, they point forward to the anointed one, the Messiah. And of course, if you're looking for that moment par excellence when Christ is anointed, it's baptismally. It's not to say he wasn't the Messiah before. Of course he is. Even from his uh, conception in Mary's womb, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So he's the Messiah straight through. But if you're to say, like, you know, when is the Messiah anointed? Well, Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, as the Spirit descends upon him. And that is, of course, uh, to John the Baptist, the sign given to him. You know, God has foretold him that when this occurs, when the Holy Spirit descends Uh, upon a man and remains on him, that man is my son, that man is my lamb and my Messiah. And so, uh, indeed, that is exactly what happens in Jesus' baptism. He's the anointed one, the Christ. And of course, then, as we are baptized, we receive the Spirit, we are Christed, we are anointed uh, with him. 
All right. So Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Which I should point out, too, that these kinds of texts and the theology of, of the anointing of Christ in baptism um, also work their way into the early church and uh, then moving forward, although they've been lost to us as Lutherans as of late, and that is um, the connection between baptism uh, and oil, that is anointing, and the Holy Spirit. So as I made mention just a moment ago, uh, when Jesus is baptized, he, he's, you know, not only does, is the water poured over him or does he go underneath the water and come back up, but then the Holy Spirit descends upon him. So you can, you can definitely see this. Is to be baptized with water is to be baptized with the Spirit. That's what Jesus teaches in John 3, for example, where he's talking to Nicodemus. You know, um, unless you're born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. And so that birth of water and the Spirit, the water and the Spirit are one. They can also be parsed out and made distinct in some respects. Um, if you see here in this text, you have the anointing with oil and then the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. The early church connects this uh, with Jesus' own baptism and weaves these themes together in such a way that immediately upon baptism, the newly baptized were anointed with oil, showing that they too have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, that this washing of water was not merely water, but was water and spirit. And what has happened to them is an anointing, uh, being made one with the anointed one, um, becoming little Christ, as Luther would way down the line later say. And so this connection with baptism of anointing, oil, anointing with oil and then that oil sort of symbolically being receiving the Holy Spirit has its roots and origins all the way back here at the anointing of kings. It's also, by the way, not only are we, as Luther would say, little Christ, since we have been christened in Christ, but we are also here then made in holy baptism kings and lords, over which Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. Where is it that we become kings and lords? When we are anointed in holy baptism. And so too then you can see this connection between baptism and the anointing of oil, Messiahship, kingship, lordship, over whom we have one Messiah, one king, one Lord, namely Jesus Christ. So uh, this is working its way back into our rubrics as Lutherans, and in fact is completely permissible, though we haven't done, begun doing it here at Faith, it's completely permissible to have an anointing with oil, we, we would just use olive oil, after the baptism uh, again, not because it's an essential part of baptism, but because it richly speaks and embodies all of this theology and a theology that the early church and the church for many hundreds of years uh, recognized. So uh, it's good to see that that practice is once more coming, uh, coming in. All right, well, back to the text. And, and, you know, again, I'm kind of just scratching the surface. You'll have to forgive me if you're sitting at home watching online thinking, well, he didn't say this or he missed that. That's true enough. There's just so much uh, depth and profundity here. I, I can't possibly get to it all. Let's go on to uh, verse 14. 
Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Okay, so <laughs> look at what's happening. The Spirit rushes upon David from that day forward, and the Spirit departs from Saul. So here once more we have a reversal going on. Boy, I should also point out here, sometimes I think well-meaning Christians, maybe even those who have been in, influenced by the charismatic or Pentecostal movements of the 1970s, have a tendency to, to think as if, that the Holy Spirit wasn't very active or wasn't doing anything in the Old Testament. Of course, that's false. And it's demonstrably false in a multitude of ways, not least of which we see the Holy Spirit in the very first lines of Scripture hovering over the waters. But I'll simply point out here, as I have in other places, where the Holy Spirit is, is quite obvi obviously at work and is quite obviously recognized by the Old Testament people, by the author of Samuel, as A, <laughs> being a thing, being a person of God, the Spirit of God, um, and B, uh, being quite active in the lives of, of God's people. We saw this even in the judges, for example. So uh, sometimes it's, it's also said, you know, well, the Holy Spirit isn't really in the, in the Old Testament, or, the, or maybe it's put more, more frequently this way. The Trinity isn't in the Old Testament. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, even in this text alone, you, you would use the language of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Simply other language, other words used, but the same concepts, not three gods, but one God. Uh, again, you know, God, um, the Word, and the Spirit. So you have, um, you have the Trinity here, you have the Spirit active here. I just point that out because the, there's far more continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament than many Christians today uh, really grasp. So the spirit rushes down upon David and departs from Saul. And where the Holy Spirit departs from Saul, look what happens next. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, in a sense, this pictures what was originally part of uh, the Western baptismal rite that Luther himself retained, at least in his earliest baptismal liturgies, that's the, the, um, the exorcism uh, in one form or another. But the, the, the theological idea here lost on us, unfortunately, is that wherever the, wherever the Holy Spirit is not, the unholy spirit is. So if, the, if I don't have the Holy Spirit, if I'm not under, under control by the Holy Spirit, if, if he isn't indwelling me, then... It's the unholy spirit who is, dwelling, who is dwelling in me. Again, not in some kind of bodily possession sort of way like you see uh, Jesus setting bodily possessed people free in the New Testament, um, but in a general sense that my will is his will. My will is the will of the unholy spirit, and I'm thoroughly under his control and sway. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit, and so I am under, my flesh is completely under the control of the unholy spirit until the Holy Spirit enters in, gives me new birth by the water and the spirit, and then I am that which is spirit, and so that which is spirit is spirit. Uh, so there's just this, uh, there's this binary reality, this zero-sum game of you either uh, have the Holy Spirit or you have the unholy spirit. And you see that um, in type, 
here where the spirit of the Lord departs and immediately a harmful spirit enters in and the harmful spirit uh, from the Lord torments him. And so I think the study note points out, you know, it gives a pretty balanced take on this harmful spirit from the Lord. Harmful or evil spirits are subject to God's control and operate only within divinely determined boundaries. What God permits, God is said to do. So uh, God permits, God sends this harmful spirit uh, as a punishment to Saul. Saul has turned against the Holy Spirit and so uh, the Lord finally just gives him over to his, his own will, his own desires, and says, fine, have a harmful spirit. And so this afflicts and torments Saul. Fascinating, fascinating section uh, this is here in verses 14 through the end of the chapter. I will, I will point out uh, here that there's a, there's a possible... Um, a, a possible... Um, problem with the chronology. I don't, although I don't, that's why I'm wrestling with my words. It's not really a problem. It's just that in, in all likelihood, the author of 1 Samuel, the narrator, is taking, this, taking the chronology and putting it out of order intentionally to set these two themes together. In other words, this business about Saul having the, having the um, harmful spirit and then what's coming, namely David being in his household playing the music uh, to grant him relief from this harmful spirit. This, this occurrence, this event or you know, happening, in all likelihood takes place after uh, David slays Goliath. And we'll see that as we move along. But why has the author chosen to sort of lift that chronologically out or, or to deprioritize the chronology of the story? Well, he's done this for the sake of thematics. He's done this for the sake of making a point in the narrative. And that point is contrasting David and the Holy Spirit rushing upon him and Saul and the, unho and the unholy spirit now rushing upon him and this, this contrast. And that contrast plays itself out then in the comparison where it's David who now has the Holy Spirit who is going to end up, um, you know, playing and making uh, and, and at least giving Saul some amount of peace. So I simply point that out that there's a, there's a chron chronological challenge here and it's likely that the author just opted for a thematic, uh, thematically pleasing series of events as opposed to a chronologically pleasing series of events. Okay, verse 15, And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are, who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. I mean, this is extremely interesting for many, many reasons. Maybe I'll simply select two. First of all, at least Saul's servants, if not Saul himself, recognize that, that he is being tormented by a harmful spirit, and this harmful spirit is from God. Now, as fascinating in its own right, why do they not advise him to repent? Why do they not advise him to be reconciled to God? Why do they not advise him to, to pray that God would remove from him this harmful spirit? Again, this all, I think, bespeaks their faithlessness, their cynicism, and 
there's even a sense of like, well, instead of turning to God, let's, let's turn to music. So that might be the first interesting point. The second interesting point, of course, is the music itself. I think the study note, uh, yeah, the study note, I think, has something to say about this, that, uh, yes, people were aware of the effects of certain types of music on those with psychological problems, and then it gives some references there. Um, and so, so too, then, music is of, this music is of, of such a quality that it has the necessary therapeutic effect. And it's interesting in and of itself. And truth be told, maybe this is something that we as uh, modern people have lost. Um, you know, certainly, certainly there are uh, psychological issues and spiritual issues, um, you know, that, that we need to seek different treatment for, you know, and I'm not trying to say anything against, um, you know, pharmaceuticals or whatever might, uh, or counseling or going and speaking with your pastor. I mean, all of those things certainly have their place. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But maybe, maybe it is that we've lost touch with the therapeutical nature of music in general. And um, I, I know I can speak from my own personal experience that sometimes just being stressed out, tired, anxious, if, if I put on hymns or Christian music or something um, pleasing, it's just amazing how quickly your mood changes and the anxiety dissipates and you just feel, you feel calm. You're reminded that it's not just uh, not just you fighting the battle. That there's that there's a whole uh, there's a whole church that consists of saints and angels who are with you and behind you and around you. And uh, music can just awaken of and, and um, awaken those things in us and, uh, and evoke feelings of pleasantness as we as we who have been filled with the Holy Spirit on account of baptism daily battle the unholy spirit and encounter him uh, working inside of us through our flesh and outside of us through uh, the, the world. And, and um, you know, as we grow weary in our combat to turn to music. Luther has such beautiful things to say in this vein too. I'm not just out on my own uh, esoteric limb of thought here. Luther says that second to, second to the word of God, Music is the most powerful and, and spiritually uplifting of, of all things given to us. So if, if none less than Luther says that, then I think I'm in good company with my own experiences. And, and maybe you have your own, but it's certainly un- understated. And, and maybe rather than, maybe this would be my one critique of, of when we're over-medicated or when we're going to counselors uh, just over and over and over, just, Maybe, maybe, the, maybe what we ought to do is, is relax, listen to God's word, hear, hear some good and some beautiful music, um, God's word set to music even better. Now you've got the two most powerful things <laughs> given to us, as Luther would say, wed and woven together. And, and let that be therapeutic to us. Uh, let that be healing to us. So anyway, I, I you know, digress to be sure, but... Uh, how can you not when there's these fascinating dynamics going on here in this text? So verse, uh, you know, again, well, verse 16, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. When the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Gosh, it's like every time I think of this, there's just another fantastic uh, consideration. 
Like, what, what does the power of beautiful music, what does the power of God's word set to music have over harmful spirits? Have over, over uh, you know, fallen angelic beings that mean to do us harm and, and in whatever ways they can affect our mood and our perception and that kind of thing. Uh, here, here it shows what a powerful weapon um, that is a, against those evil spirits. You know, again, we, we know nothing we know basically nothing about how they work, but we get these glimpses in Scripture. Um, again, let me just read it to you. You have it right from God's Word, you know. In playing the lyre, a skillful man who playing the lyre, when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. All right, we'll keep those things in mind. Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. Okay. And the Lord is with him. So clearly, the, you know, while, while he's given all of these, you know, Human credentials. This is this very human resume: a man of uh, valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, um, and a man of good presence. This final clause. This is the giveaway. And the Lord is with him. So, if the Lord is with him and he's going to be playing his music, then the harmful spirit's going to be driven away. That's that's really the theology, at least, of the servant here, and I think it's the theology that that we're meant to take away as well. Now, listen, this is, um, you can already tell here, like, wait a minute. The last time we heard of, of David, he was this, he was obviously this youth, and he's out keeping the sheep, and then not but a few verses later, we're, be, <laughs> we're being told that he's a, um, a, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, etc. Um, if you drop down to the study note, so here you can see the chronological issues at play. If you drop down to the study note on verse 18, um, David was not yet 20 years old. This raises questions of chronology. Um, and then you can see the note earlier, verses 14 to, through 23, this episode could have occurred after the defeat of Goliath, but is placed here to contrast the departure of God's spirit from Saul with the conferring of his spirit upon David. Okay, so you see this, this event could have taken place after David and Goliath, maybe topically arranged here rather than chronologically. And of course, we see that in the Gospels. We see that in narrative texts all the time. It's not some great big got you like, um, like some folks think it is. It's just the author is making a, making a choice here. A value the topical as opposed to the chronological. All right, um, Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. Yeah, so it is interesting. It is interesting. Um, you know, David is going with a donkey with bread and wine. And then with a young goat who's going to be sacrificed. You have such Christian images here. 
um, images that will come to mean so much in the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, he rides on a donkey in going to the capital city. David, he's the son of David, the Messiah. Now David, his father, so to speak, right? He's in the line of David. That's all I'm saying. Um, David is now going to the, to the royal city um, with, a, with a donkey. Of course, the mention of um, bread and wine portends to the sacrament, and the young goat to a sacrifice portends to the cross, the Lamb of God. So there are some deep and rich Christological themes, especially since it's so foundational that the Messiah, that Jesus be understood as the son of David. And uh, So here you see David um, imbued with these very things. Verse 21, And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him. So there again, you can kind of see the chronological, like, wait a minute, how did this happen? How does this line up? David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David uh, took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Which I love. You have good, godly music. And you know, I mean... David is a man of the Lord. That's how he's been described. And of course, David penned so many psalms. You, you know the nature of this music. This, is, this isn't ungodly music. This is godly music. It's God-pleasing music. Um, if he's singing, and he may well be, you have the word of God accompanying it. And look what it does. It drives away the evil spirit. The harmful spirit departs from him. You also have David then put in this beautiful Christological role where David is... Is the, is the mediator even between, um, between God and, and an apostate king. And God grants relief through this mediator, even, even to a wicked one. You know, Saul has been very wicked toward the Lord, and yet the Lord gives David and gives the song of David to drive away the evil spirit so that even this, even this enemy of God, God is blessing him and giving him peace and, and respite. Uh, so just a beautiful image because no matter how faithless we've been or apostate we've been, uh, he sends not David to us, but one greater than David, David's son, but David's Lord. And with the, with the music of his word, our Lord Jesus drives the evil spirit away from us and gives us a clean conscience and a right heart once more and cleanses us and sets us free. We who were, had maybe become enemies of God in our actions and in our conscience were cleansed of those things and we become reconcile to him once more and uh, have clean hearts before him. So anyway, again, we see just more beautiful typology and, and things to which uh, uh, point to the son of David and the Lord of David in Jesus. And we're going to see that all the more, aren't we, in David and Goliath. So chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits, and I'll be relying on the study Bible here. Apparently that's over nine feet tall. So this is larger than any folks we've got around in our own day. So his height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is about 125 pounds. It's pretty incredible. So not only is Goliath uh, tall, but he's, uh, he's robust and strong, strong enough to bear this 125-pound armor. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The study note, I think, says that this is the shape rather than exactly the size or weight. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is apparently 14 and a half pounds. I mean, that's, a, that's just a lot of weight. So this is a very, very strong man, obviously, at nine feet. Although, you know, some of our, some of our tallest men these day and age, they're just very skinny and very tall. Uh, but this, is, this guy's just huge and very, very strong to be able to lift and carry all of this. Like, like, not, like really no one living today. I, I mean, I think that that's a fair assessment. So... He's got a spearhead that weighs 14 and a half pounds. That's incredible weight. Yeah. Verse 7. Oh, yeah, no, we covered verse 7. Halfway through verse 7. And his shield bearer went before him. Okay, so this is not uncommon. You have a shield bearer basically holding up your shield in front of him and you uh, so that you've got your hands free to, to do what you need to do. Um, and of course, you can grab the shield if you, if you absolutely need to grab it. But uh, yeah, you've got an actual shield bearer here. So um, again, just trying to make your, uh, all the tools possibly available to you, you know, right at hand as you go into battle. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? That's, um, in the ears of Israel, that ought to be a dig. That really ought to be a dig. Because they're supposed to be servants of the Lord. And remember, they chose not the Lord, but Saul. And so, you know, I mean... Again, who knows, who knows what Goliath is aware of in and of himself, but this is definitely Satan speaking through the mouth of, of Goliath and uh, insulting Israel. Um, 
are you not servants of Saul? You know, like they who are servants of the living God have now become servants of this, of this human king and one who is quite corrupt at that. You can even tell, though, I think on a human level, it's a dig. He says, am I not a Philistine? You know, like, like there's great pride in being this, whereas you're servants of this man. You know, he does not say, am I a Philistine and you Israelite? No, he says, am I not a Philistine? Which quite evidently swells him up with a feeling of pride and you are servants of Saul. You know, you're servants of a man. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. So again, the picture, the two armies are on the mountains. There's a valley below. Uh, he comes in, Goliath comes into the valley. He's taunting Israel, saying, let the man come down to me in battle. Um, well, there's some typology there, I suppose, just in the sense that Christ comes down to earth to battle the satanic Goliath, you know, the Goliath of hell that we are up against, who's taunting and jeering us, who no man on our side can beat. And he's, he's taunting and, and calling a man to come down. And, you know, in this sense, Christ comes down and uh, fights with him, uh, defeats him in the wilderness, for example, and definitively on the cross, as we'll, as we'll discuss. Verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So again, this should prick the ears of the Israelites, that they ought to see in front of, that they ought to be interpreting these words theologically and seeing in front of them an emissary of the evil one, not not seeing merely uh, this, this giant fleshly guy, but they should hear the taunts, uh, your servants of Saul. They, a, a red-blooded Israelite should say, I'm a servant of the Lord. And when he says, you know, you, you'll serve us, a red-blooded Israelite should say, I serve only the Lord. And so, so the fact that there's none of that really sp speaks to the spiritual depravity, the, the depraved and depressed spiritual state of Israel at this time, that, that this just does nothing. Or they're not able to hear through that and then say exactly as David does, like, wait a minute, these are theological taunts. God is certainly going to match these and defeat these and not let these stand, which is, of course, it's, it's only David who has ears to hear what's really going on here. Again, as we'll see. So that language should prick their hearts and their ears, you know. You shall be our servants and serve us. No, we should be servants of the Lord and serve him. That's why he brought us out of Egypt, right, to serve him. Verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, and you remember, Saul has this whole time been described as like this, this tall figure, you know, uh, the rest of the heads of the Israelites only go up to his shoulders. You know, he's this tall, stately, kingly figure. Like, this is you. You're supposed to be the guy. I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and, and also, like, the people wanted a king. And they even, in their language, if you recall, that he will fight for us. And now it's, it's time for that king. It's time for him to fight for them. And, of course, he won't. 
So we, we don't want to forget those earlier themes in the book, that this is really, really tragic. Saul is supposed to be the guy, but he has already fallen so far spiritually, he can't even, he can't even come close to doing what he is called to do. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, this is theological. They're cowed by the theology here. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. See, we're being introduced to him really almost for the third time, aren't we? Who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Reference to Jesse. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And remember, um, oh yeah, well, here we go. Uh, And the names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And of course, aren't those the very names given um, back in chapter 16, verse 6 and following, where uh, Samuel comes to Jesse's household, and of course, Eliab comes first, um, followed by... uh, yeah, followed by Abinadab and then Shammah. Yeah, it's all right there. So those are the three, the three named, and here they are named again. So he's got the, the three oldest sons of Jesse end up going, they're, they're of age to go fight. You know, and again, if it's, you can see the chronological trouble if... Um, because already back in verse uh, 18 of chapter 16, you recall that David is introduced by the servant to Saul as um, one who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war. So if that were true, then why isn't David here listed, as well as all the other bro- brothers, since David's the youngest, as, as being in, into the war? So in all likelihood, you know, the study, as the study Bible points out, that event probably happens um, after after David and Goliath. Okay, so uh, David was the youngest. We are reminded of that in verse 14. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. So there once more we're reminded that he's a shepherd, a theme that is brought out all the more in the verses to come. And we are reminded of his origin once more at Bethlehem. So this is a big deal. And, of course, for for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem is a big deal. Joseph is of the house and line of David. Joseph goes back to Bethlehem because of this. Jesus is born. And so uh, the true king who fights for his people, the true shepherd king, is born. So, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, of course, has all of these things written. The Word of God has all these things written so that when he arrives... uh, we will have a sufficient background to understand who he is. Verse 10. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. It's devastating, of course. Morning and evening are the prayer times of the people of of Israel. Um, They're the times that, you know, as the sun is rising, as the sun is setting, even creation itself is calling them and us to worship God, and that's the very time this, you know, this guy's coming out and blaspheming. This 
embodiment of Satan is blaspheming them and they're, they're cowering. This is, again, has to do less with human courage and more with <clears throat> not being able to discern life and experience theologically. They can't even see what's going on. And that, you know, that befalls us too. That's, where, that's what we probably have to gain from this text, among many other things, is the ability to see things theologically, the ability to hear things theologically, and then respond accordingly. David, of all of them, is capable of this, as we'll see. Now, for 40 days the Philistine came forward. This is amazing, because of course, so, so think back to what we've seen. David is anointed, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him, then we see that um, he's going to come out to battle this Philistine who has been there for 40 days. Now, make that parallel to what happens with Jesus and see he is anointed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and he's immediately driven out into the wilderness to meet the Goliath of hell, to battle Satan in the wilderness. And for how many days? 40. So, those 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness, of course, there's just many, many layers of that. You know, Israel was wandering in the wilderness uh, for 40 years, and so Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. For 40 years, they were tempted by Satan, so Jesus for um, 40 days, and where Israel fell and fell and fell, our Lord uh, defeats him and defeats him and defeats him once more. But also in the background here is this idea that um, for 40 days, this satanic figure is attacking God's people. For 40 days, Satan is attacking Jesus. And just as David overcomes this Goliath, so Jesus overcomes Satan. All right, verse 17, And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. All right, well, he's bringing food to the brothers. That makes sense. And then he's bringing cheese to the commanders. Why? <laughs> so they don't put them on the front lines so that they treat them well. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they engaged, though perhaps there were some skirmishes here and there. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that. They may well just be retaining their battle lines. Verse 20, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper Again, we're just being, look at this, we're being reminded over and over how he's the shepherd. How he's the shepherd king. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle. Here you can see the language of host um, being used for army. So the Lord of hosts, properly understood as the Lord of armies and it's militant uh, when the when Jesus is born and over the Bethlehem sky there is uh, suddenly um, a plethos stratia uh, a heavenly army um, a heavenly host 
it's, it's a militant figure. I think we get that wrong so often. When, when we think of Christmas, we, the sentimentality is so nice, but it's really just one side of the coin. That's beautiful. I don't want to take anything away from it. It's tender and beautiful and warm and wonderful and so much what we need. Uh, but that's just one side of the coin. The other side is that the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is a cosmic act of war. It's an invasion. It's, it's David stepping, out, uh, stepping down and out into the valley against uh, ground that has been controlled by Goliath, by Satan. And so the whole heavenly army is on high rejoicing and shouting that peace is going to be on the earth. No peace on the earth because Satan just brings nothing but violence. So in order to bring peace, there's going to have to be battle. And that battle is going to be incredible, just incredible. It's one of the reasons why Jesus weeps for the people on his way to the cross. They do not know what makes for their peace. They think there's a political solution, just like we think today there's a political solution. It's not. There's a spiritual solution. The political solution is, in fact, really satanic. It's a, it's a spiritual solution that's needed. The political solution's a lie. Well, so let me try to find my place once more here. I got a little wound up there. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> So verse 21, why not? And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Did I skip something? I don't know. Maybe I ought to back up. I'm sorry about this. If I had people here, they'd correct me right away, but alas, I don't. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left with the sheep with the, keep, uh, left the, sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went uh, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Ah, you are the servants of Saul. You're going to serve us. Which again, is, that's theological language that if they can hear it, they don't think theologically. They just think physically. We're doomed. Okay, but look what it says. This is so dramatic, so beautiful. Spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. This does, I mean, this, sure, it just means that, like, yeah, David was present when he was talking. But there is a theological hearing that goes on here. David hears what the others either don't or are, or are too spiritually dull to, to realize then what that means. So, 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
Um, in other words, as the study note says, the victor's family will be exempt from taxes or obligated labor. So instead of fighting for the people, which Saul should be doing, he promises to enrich uh, profoundly whoever it is um, that does his job for him. <laughs> which is quite ironic, of course, given that we know the end of the story and that it's David who does it. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Again, this is like that's technical language for who is this pagan unbeliever. Okay. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so there finally David gets it. Like they, I mean, I don't mean finally he gets it. I mean finally the people get it from the mouth of David that this is a theological uh, thing going on here. This isn't just, this, if, I mean, if there's ever anything that's just about military might, it certainly isn't this. Right? There's a theological reality behind. Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So, I mean, what does David affirm? Like, all the people agree, like, hey, this is the bargain, this is the deal. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, you're just, you're just here for the rated R movie. You know, you're just here for the drama and the bloodshed. There, there, I, there's a sense in which his own brother turns against him. There's a sense in which this is a, a Judas Iscariot type moment where the brother turns against Christ. You know, Judas turns against Christ. The brother turns against David, falsely accuses him, etc. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So, in other words, David here protesting his innocence. You know, you should be angry at, you should be angry not at what I'm saying or my presence. You should be angry at what Goliath is saying in his presence. So he turns away and, you know, speaks to others about the same thing. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Again, this seems to be before he was earlier called a mighty man of valor. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Right, so he's a, obviously he's a mature man, Goliath, and uh, David is just a youth, just a, a boy, just a child. So again, the, you see the, the, the lowly and the mighty and the reversal motif that's going to take place here just in... Uh, 
in David and Goliath. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So here we see, you know, just this beautiful motif that David as the shepherd king is going to fight. And it's no different for Jesus. He's going to fight. I mean, the, the, the cross is a cosmic attack against Satan. It's the weakness that is the manifestation of God's power. And it violently overthrows sin, death, and the devil. It violently th- overthrows all of it. And furthermore, when Jesus returns in victory, that, that victory won on the cross is going to be made manifest, and that power is going to go forth such that evil will have no choice but to flee away. So there's, you know, sometimes there's this idea that, like, Jesus is anti-violence or something like that. I mean, nothing could be more stupid. The whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, the whole promise of Christ, the, ad, the first advent of Christ, the promise of Christ's coming, these are all violent acts. Um, the, the Lord is a warrior. He's a shepherd that attacks the bear, the lion, the giant, you know, these figures of Satan. He attacks them, strikes them down. All right, so, uh, so yeah, he's defied the armies of the living God. Obviously, the living God is going to defy him and, and defeat him through me. That's David's point. So verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Look at this. David has been thinking theologically his entire life, or he's been perceiving theologically. When he, takes the, when he defeats the bear, when he defeats the lion, he doesn't say, oh, look how accomplished I am. Look how amazing I am. Let me build a statue to myself like Saul. He says, the Lord has delivered me from these things. So again, he sees his, he sees his life and the things that happen to him and even the victories he has. He sees these things as given to him by the Lord. Not only just humble, but like, like true. It's just the truth he speaks. So, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. And, I love this, this is fine. We're at a perfect stop, <laughs> stopping point for a cliffhanger. Course you can read on if you like. But we'll stop here and next week we'll pick up with you know this dramatic moment where David has uh, has boldly proclaimed that he's going to defeat the giant against all odds, and Saul has finally said fine, and he puts his armor on David, and, and we'll have to see what happens next. So until next week, the Lord be with you. <laughs>